All right, good morning, friends. Glad to see you. I'm Pastor Matt. Uh, If you're new with us, I'm just so glad that you are here. We're in a series called Heaven and Nature Sing. And uh, we're looking each week at some of the great Christmas songs. I remember the first time as a child realizing, oh my gosh, these are profoundly deep. Uh, These are not just songs about Christmas. They're songs about the nature of who our God is. And so we're going to talk some more about that, uh, looking at this whole series at what these songs have to say about the first Christmas and what that means to us today. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is maybe one of the most widely known Christmas carols. It um, was written sometime in the Middle Ages by an unknown monk. We don't know who wrote it. It was originally in Latin. And somewhere in the 19th century, um, a guy named John Mason Neal was not uh, getting along well with the powers that be, and he ended up somewhere in North Africa discovering the song. And it's a very uninteresting story, so I'm not going to tell it to you. But we have this song, and it's profound, and it's one of the most famous Christmas songs because it so aptly summarizes the entire Christmas story. In fact, you get the entire meaning of Christmas in one word. You know which word that is, of course? Emmanuel, right? Uh, Some of you are like, oh man, I said the wrong thing. Um, Emmanuel, right? And that means God with us. Okay, there you go. Um, And uh, this this song really just dials in on this word Emmanuel, God with us. And you could spend your entire life, you and I could spend our entire lives focusing in on this one word. We, we could spend our entire lives pondering it, trying to live into it, and we would never exhaust just how rich a reality it points to. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in a famous Christmas Eve sermon, uh, goes off on this word, Emmanuel, and, and says, if you merely whisper it, Satan flees. You know, he's just, he dials in on how important this is. And and so for us this morning, I, I want to get across that this idea that Jesus is God with us is not just a nice sentiment from a medieval Vespers hymn, but it is in fact something that the entirety of the scriptures speak to, anticipate, and, and, and affirm. Uh, the word Emmanuel describes the event, the Christ event, on that first Christmas, uh, as it's told in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn it open to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll throw it up on the screens as well. And if you have a pew Bible, it's page 783. And uh, this is what uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew says about the birth of Jesus. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now, maybe this is a familiar story for you today. And if it is, I just want to encourage you and invite you to hear it with fresh ears. That maybe there's a new layer of meaning that God wants you to hear. And if this is a new story to you, it's unexplored territory, I want to invite you to hear it with an open mind. That maybe there is something here uh, that is a new discovery that may change everything. So, here's the deal. You have a guy, Matthew, who is composing all these eyewitness accounts into a grand narrative. And he takes the eyewitness accounts about the birth of Jesus and he points out two things. We get the eyewitness account and its meaning according to the angel and according to Matthew. And the angel's words, this boy should be named Jesus. And Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is our salvation. And Matthew, in his words, says this fulfills what the, the prophet Isaiah said, that there would be a virgin who would conceive a child and his name would be Emmanuel. It comes from Isaiah chapter 7. But honestly, Isaiah 7 is just the midpoint in the story of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, as a, as a notion, really starts back in Genesis 1. You have to go all the way back to creation to find a God who is present to his people in the garden. He walks with them. He's in community with them. And then in Genesis 3, you have a God who comes, brings his presence to sinners, but we are exiled from his place and from the full presence. And the story moves on to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and you have Moses and Torah, the law, the instruction of Yahweh, and his presence is there on the mountain, but it's terrifying, and people are like, send someone else, we can't do face-to-face with this God. And the story moves on to a a tabernacle where God is present, but only in a tent and only for a priest. Ultimately, the story leads to the Messiah, who is God with us. And then he gives the spirit who is God in us. And the story is consummated. It's ended by a new earth where God will be fully present, where he will dwell with his people forever. And so the entire Bible can be summed up in one word. Emmanuel. It tells a story. And the Isaiah 7 reference that Matthew grabs is an interesting one because it comes during a time when Jerusalem, it's part of the, the central city of the kingdom of Judah, who's in a civil war with Israel, the tribes of the north. And the king of Jerusalem is under duress because the armies of Israel and Syria are coming at him. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, the king of Jerusalem, you can have confidence that God is going to deliver you because there will be a sign and the sign will be a child who will be called Emmanuel. God's with us. But most scholars agree that this child is a double reference. It's not just the child born in Ahaz's day, though it certainly was. It also picks up meaning for a future child. A child who will come, who will actually pick up the theme of hope from Genesis 3, that there would be a seed from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and overcome evil. And this child will be more than just a child. In fact, he won't just be a sign that God can deliver, but he will be the agent of God's delivery from the people's ultimate captivity. He's described in Isaiah 9, 6, Like this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And that's who this child will be. 
And so the reference to the Emmanuel came to be known in Israel as the coming Messiah who would be the king from the line of David who would come to bring the ultimate rescue from exile and slavery to sin for the people of God. Now what Matthew is doing is he's saying, look, this child is Jesus. The creator has entered creation. So we're going to spend the rest of the morning on this one word, Emmanuel. And it's going to be a really complex sermon where we're going to look at three points. The first point is that Jesus is God with us. The second point is that Jesus is God with us. And the third point is that Jesus is God with us. So we're just going to break that down and it's going to be really hard to follow along. So, all right. So the first reality that we get in Emmanuel is that Jesus is God with us. This might be the most striking thing that the New Testament actually says. That the God of Israel, the creator God, the covenant God of Israel has arrived on earth as a human person. This is a striking teaching of the New Testament. And there are many people who say that Jesus never really said he was God. That's just something that the church added later uh, to just kind of bolster its own power. But that is not actually accurate to the eyewitness accounts. In fact, almost everything Jesus did pointed to the fact that he really, truly believed that he was God-made man. For example, if I were to owe Pastor Josh $100, I think I owe him something like six bucks, but I owe him, uh, let's say a hundred bucks. With six bucks is enough, but a hundred bucks, let's make it really kind of gnarly. And then Pastor Dave came along and said, your debt is forgiven. You no longer owe Josh $100. I would be thrilled, but Josh would be incensed, right? Because Josh would be like, you have no power. Like, you have no authority to forgive my debt. The debt was against me. And so um, what Jesus is doing all throughout the Gospels is that sort of thing. He's coming along and he's saying, well, you know, actually, uh, the Sabbath is going to work like this. Um, you know, and or I'm going to change... I'm going to change around the things that only God has the power to change around. He's going to come around and he's going to say things like, your sins are forgiven. How can he do that? How can he tell somebody that their sins are forgiven? Because who are sins ultimately against? Against God. You read David's words in Psalm 51, which is his confession of sin. By the way, if you want to learn how to confess sin, go read Psalm 51. It's uh, brilliant and exactly what we ought to do when we have sin in our lives. But he had just murdered a guy and cheated on his wife. So, pretty bad moment in David's life. Uh, and, and what he says is, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, of course, he's not saying I didn't sin against these guys. I, of course, have horizontal sin, but ultimately my sin is most grievous to you. Okay? And so Jesus comes along and he says, I forgive your sins. And people are incensed because they think only God can do that. But what Jesus is really saying is he says, look, I'm the one who's most grieved by your sins. I'm the one who's most affronted and offended by your sins. And I actually have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Or when Jesus comes uh, with his great I am statements in the gospel of John, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd. He's saying, in a sense, I am identical to the God of Moses. The I am who I am of Exodus 3. I am the creator God, the covenant God of Israel. I am him. Or Paul, when he says to the elders of Ephesus in Acts, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Whose blood? Jesus' blood. 
Or when Paul says in Colossians 2 that in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not a fraction of God, not just a man with heightened God consciousness, but all the fullness of God. Or in Romans 9.5 when he says that Christ is God over all forever praised. Pause here and just think for a second. Who are the people who are saying these things? Which people have concluded that Jesus is God? They're Jews. These are people who are the last people on the planet in in the first century world who would have ever concluded that a person was in fact Yahweh. Their entire worldview went against it. They weren't like the Eastern religions that said there's a God force in everything and so we can kind of say that he's God through kind of a back door. Or they weren't like the pagans who thought that there were many gods, some of whom happened to appear as a human from time to time. These were Jews who prayed daily the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.5 prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. These are not the people who would conclude that Jesus is God. And yet, they became convinced, based on what Jesus did, based on what Jesus said, based on the way he fit the story of Israel, and ultimately the sheer reality of his person, convinced them that he was God in the flesh. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his great essays, describes the significance of this event, the event of the incarnation, the God becoming flesh. And he, he says that if the incarnation happened at all, then it is the central chapter of the entire human history. He goes on and explains that if someone gives you a piece of a missing symphony or a m- text from a missing play or novel uh, and says it was a central piece of that symphony or novel, it was the piece on which the whole thing turned, you would test it out. You would put it in the middle and you would say, if this illuminates meaning to all the rest of the symphony, if it opens new possibilities to the rest of the play or the story, it brought light to all the other aspects of that story or symphony, you would say, it's authentic, right? But if, it, if it's just really beautiful, but it doesn't really seem to make more sense out of the rest of the work, you would say it's great, but it's not authentic. It doesn't create a hinge piece for the rest of the work. And so that is actually what we get on Christmas. That's what Lewis is saying. That's what the authors of Scripture are saying, that Jesus is actually the hinge piece of the entire story of creation. So play it out a little bit. What if he is God? What if Jesus is actually God? What does it have to say about God? Uh, If he is, then he would certainly be the central moment in all of history. He would become the eternal becoming temporal, as Soren Kierkegaard says. Or it would mean that God can identify with you, that he actually gets you. He gets what it means to be human. It would mean that Jesus wouldn't just be a great moral teacher who, if you think about Jesus as a great moral teacher, it makes him a horrible burden, right? Who can do that? Who can live up to that? And yet Jesus would, rather than being a burden, would be the one who truly liberates us from the burden of sin and death and loneliness and injustice. And so all this causes us to ask the question, if that is who he says he is, and if that is, in fact, who he is, then that must mean that he's central, that he's Lord of all. But it begs the question, is he Lord of me? Has that become a personal thing? Is he actually central In my story, is he central in your story? Because if he is central in your story, it begins to shape every other part of the story, doesn't it? 
Because if he's central in the story, if he's actually Lord of all of me, then it changes the way I'm a friend. I'm actually more gracious and truth-telling at the same time. I'm more uh, inviting and welcoming. I'm more forgiving. It changes the kind of way I spend my time and my money. I become both more wise and more generous. I, I grow into who he is. If he's really central, it shapes how you live in all these other areas. And so the question today is, is he central? Is he Lord? Is he more than a baby? Is he more than a Christmas carol? Is he, in fact, Lord of all, become human? And if that's the case, then where's that shaping you? Where's that creating gravity in your life such that everything else begins to orbit around him rather than me, my ego, or my drive for more or uh, better status or whatever it is that we tend to orbit our lives around. And if he's central, as Lewis says in the Bible affirms, then it means that Jesus is not only God, but he's God with us. So the hard point is the exclusive piece, that Jesus is actually Lord. If we come to that conclusion, that's pretty sweet. But the next piece is very soft. It's that Jesus is God with us. That is point number two, that Jesus is God with us. And I have to say, I think in the English language, with might be one of the most exciting words we have. Just think about what with means. It conveys relationship and presence with an E-N-C-E, not N-T-S, kids. But right? The presence of a person. There you go. Um, so it conveys partnership and shared experience. With changes everything. Um, my kids crave withness from Lauren and me. They, they do. And if you've ever had young kids you know what a terribly overwhelming burden it is to clean one's room. And so there's just like this overwhelming need for me to be with them when they have to clean their room. And, and so I do, and I point things out, like there's a sock over there, and you missed that Lego, and there's some underwear hanging from that, and I don't know why they got up there, but we need to put those away. And, and the withness somehow removes that burden, that overwhelming burden that I can't go it alone. And in fact, just to make the point clear that withness changes everything, I want to tell you a tale of two elevator rides that I've experienced. And um, When I was younger, we were really into sports. Um, I, I, my parents still are. I, I've just found that old dead people are a little bit more in- interesting to me personally than guys that get paid way more money to play games for a living. So, uh, But... Nonetheless, I'm an appreciator of sports. And we grew up going to baseball games. We were National League fans, so we, we rooted for the Atlanta Braves. And living in Seattle, you don't, didn't get to see them, so you had to travel to places like San Francisco. And we'd go, and we'd stay in the same hotel as the Braves. And it was awesome. And you could kind of creep out in the lobby and get autographs. And it was really rad. Uh, and one time, I was getting in the elevator to go down to the lobby. I think we were headed to the stadium or something. I was lagging behind, and I was alone in the elevator, uh, except with some strangers. And I did what I always do in an elevator because there's a little bit of me that's introverted and so I look down because looking people in the eye is a social contract that you have to have a conversation with them and so I I look down and and pretty soon I realized that I was standing next to a guy who very well might be the Incredible Hulk because his legs were huge and I started to look up like what is this thing and it was it was the first baseman of the Braves, Andre Scalaraga, who in the 90s was, was cool to be on an elevator ride with Andre Scalaraga. He was a great home run hitter, and he was, he was a great ball player. I saw him on TV all the time. I had his starting lineup on my dresser. Do you remember starting lineups? I, I couldn't find any good pictures on Google of starting lineups. But um, 
And so I was excited because now instead of just having an elevator ride, I had an elevator ride with Andres Galarago. My elevator ride meant something to me. It was exciting now. Now, another time I had a chance to go to Paris when I was a college student with, again, my parents. And uh, there's something about Paris. It's just beautiful. It's a romantic city. There are people literally kissing everywhere. And I thought I want to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. My parents didn't, so I went up alone. And I have to tell you, it was a dark season in my life because I just went through a breakup. It was, I was, it was low, you know. It's like, I'm in Paris after a breakup. I was considering, like, dating my old high school girlfriend, and I was like, stop it, get no more. And so it was this kind of brutal time. And, uh, and I remember going up the uh, elevator to the top of the Eiffel Tower alone, feeling so alone. And it was, you know, thank you. It was good. There were, of course, a couple of older Russian ladies who kept crowding me on the elevator, and which really made me cranky. And, uh, and you see, every experience we have means something different based on the uniqueness and the value of the people we share that experience with. Every experience changes its meaning based on the people we are with. The elevator ride with Andres Galarraga was way cooler than an elevator ride alone to the top of the Eiffel Tower. But I have to tell you, I would take an elevator ride with my wife to the top of the elevator any day over Andres Galarraga. Like, please. So, everything that happens in our lives will mean something different based on the ones we are with as it happens. The message of Christmas, friends, is that in Jesus Christ, God is for us because he is with us. He is not the far-off, distant clockmaker God of deism. He is actively present. He has become personal. He relates. He identifies. And he refuses to abandon his creation, even though it will mean his own rejection, alienation, exile, and death. Did you know that with is such an important word that it's at the beginning and end of Matthew, that it's bookends to the entire gospel? At the beginning, you have the Isaiah 7 quote, that this is God with us, this Jesus is God with us, and at the end of the gospel, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, you have the very words of Jesus in Matthew 28 where he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's the bookends of the gospel. It is the God who is with us. This is because Christmas is the precursor to the cross, which is the precursor to the resurrection and the ascension and ultimately the giving of the Spirit. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ did what we couldn't do. He absorbed evil. He let it do its worst to him. He took the judgment that our guilt deserves. He took the shame and defilement that sin creates. And letting evil do its worst, he defeated it by disarming it with his own justice. And he's raised in victory. And that very risen, very alive, very present Jesus can promise that he will never leave or forsake his people. He will be with them always because the very thing that alienated us from the presence of God to begin with has been dealt with in the cross and in the resurrection. 
And therefore, as Paul says in Romans 8, we cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is good news, friends. Christmas says, look, you cannot earn God's withness. His withness has to be a gift. It has to be grace because the promise of God's being with us depends on the work of God Himself. And if you live with that with, it changes everything. It changed everything in the story of Maureen. We heard from her own words this morning that, of course, it doesn't nullify loss. It never does. Instead, it changes how we live in the loss. It changes how we live with the loss. She lives, in her words, in the presence of a God who gives her joy because He's with her. You heard her say it. There's hope for her story because she has the hope of a God with her. And that offer is for all who would embrace Jesus by faith. See, God is with you. He's with you. See, maybe you're going through something right now. You're walking through a part of your story that you really wish you weren't walking through. If I could write my story, I would not have written this chapter. And maybe you're walking through that, and as you walk through chapters like that, it feels like maybe I'm alone. Maybe I've been abandoned by God. Maybe He no longer cares. Maybe He even is after me in a negative sense. And this idea of Emmanuel, this name of Jesus, says, look, even if you and I can't answer why we suffer, because a lot of times we can't. I mean, you read Job. He doesn't get a strong why. Even if we can't answer why we suffer, we know at least one reason why we don't suffer. We don't suffer because God's abandoned us. See, the incarnation says, look, actually, I've become vulnerable. I've entered into your story and I suffer with you so that I can suffer vicariously for you so that you can be with me forever. See, God is with you and you can see it in this child, the Emmanuel of Matthew 1. He comes to us vulnerable. He comes to us dependent and he'll go through hell so that He can be with you and lift you out of darkness and make you light in Him. Do you see God's withness in any part of your story today? Is there a part of your story where you recognize God's with me? Such that it's personal, not just theoretical. A knowledge on on your heart that, that not only is God everywhere, but He is with me and He's overcome death to be in relationship with me and He won't leave me. Martin Luther says this, and this is worth repeating. Do not, or you do not yet have Christ, he says, even though you know that he is God and man. You truly have him when you believe that this altogether pure and innocent person has been granted to you by the Father as your high priest and redeemer. See, the, the knowledge of his withness comes when we recognize the gospel. That Jesus isn't just a God who is around. He is a God who intercedes, who mediates, who redeems, who enters in to fix what I can't. That brings us to the third point this morning. Emmanuel says that Jesus is God with us. Okay, and this is going to sound really simplistic, but who's the us? 
Like, who is the us? It's actually a worthwhile question if you dig into it. Like, who on earth is the us? Is, it, is that everyone? Is that some people? Who's the us? Three things I want to draw out here. First of all, the us is all humanity. Jesus doesn't come to identify with a select group of individuals with a certain pedigree. In fact, um, this means that he comes to offer hope for all. He's available to all. There isn't a barrier of race or religion or socioeconomic status or moral track record that cuts you off from the gift available in Jesus Christ because he has become human. The early church fathers, I think... I read this in Gregory of Naziansis. I'm sure you all know the reference. Um, And as as you wade through some stuff that's a bit boring, you get to this line, and it's amazing. He says that he's arguing for the, the reality that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. And he's saying, look, the unassumed is the unhealed. And before you check out and going, I don't know what that means, hear this out. He says, the unassumed is the unhealed. In other words, if God has not assumed, taken on humanity, then humanity is left to its own devices. It can't actually heal its deepest wounds. It can't actually um, have the power to be deeply healed and transformed. And so, as Augustine says, Jesus Christ became what he was not, but did not lose what he was. He assumed unto himself. God assumed human flesh. And because he's assumed humanity, thus the common denominator for all of us is our humanity. And we have access to Jesus' gift of grace and salvation and acceptance. And the second point here is that the us are those who are humble. So first of all, it's available to all. It's all humans. But... The ones who actually grasp it, who embrace it, are the humble. Notice the scene at the birth announcement of Jesus Christ in all the Gospels. Who are the people who gather around him? It's the vulnerable. It's the weak. It's the ones who are like this vulnerable young Jewish girl at her prayers who is suddenly pregnant. Talk about vulnerability. Or it's the scandalized fiancé who only has the word of an angel to go on. Or a group of shepherds, the socially uh, uh, lowest layer of society who gather around the Jesus born in the manger. It's these crackpot astrologers from the East, the mystics who come going, we have a star, I think there's a king. These are the people who are humble. They know their needs. They know that they have a need for God. You see, Jesus is always only truly embraced by those who see their need. And it's the humble who see their need. Matthew says later, or Jesus in his own words, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is the spiritual zeros. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek. Because to enter the kingdom, to embrace Jesus as king, one needs to be in touch with our deep deep need for identity and forgiveness, acceptance and belonging and to recognize that I cannot meet my own deep needs on my own. All you need is nothing with Jesus. All you need is nothing. But if you have something, it's going to get in the way. If you have something like I did this or I come from this family or I kind of, you know, my record looks like it will get in the way. But if you have nothing, if you recognize I am humbled See, the gospel is offensive. It says to us, look, you do not have what it takes. We're so messed up 
in the ways that we cannot fix on our own and we need the intervention of God and His favor that's by His grace. And so the humble ones come to Jesus because they can admit, I have a mess that I cannot clean up and I need you to clean me, to forgive me, to make me right in your eyes and to make me a part of your family and to empower me for a different life. So it's the humble who are the us. And then finally, Jesus identifies with us as humans. He's available to those who see their needs. And thirdly, the us are those who become hopeful. They become hopeful because the true gift of Christmas is really enjoyed by the ones who see their need is met in Emmanuel. It's not just enough to go, I have a need. I have to trust that that need is so deeply met in Jesus that it changes everything. See, the one, on one hand, the gospel says, look, you and I are wicked and, and we cannot meet our own deep need for forgiveness ourselves, but it also says, look what God has done. All that you need has been met in Jesus. See, God doesn't do it out of obligation. He does it out of loving grace. And he says, I want so much to have life with you that I will suffer for you and with you. See, the us that the Emmanuel is talking about here are not only the humble, but they're the hopeful, the ones who recognize, I can rejoice and say my deepest needs are met in the one who's come to be God with me. I can live a generous life because he's been generous to me. I can live without fear because he's overcome death. I can live a life of love because I know what it means to be sacrificially loved and accepted eternally. And so life is not gloomy for the us in him. Life has a bright future because they know that he is with them forever. And here's the thing about hope-filled people. They always do this thing. Hope-filled people always overflow. Have you ever noticed that? Hope-filled people are spilly. They leak hope on other people. It's messy. It gets on you. And you just, so if you don't want hope in your life, get away from hope-filled Christians. Like that's, by the way, like all Christians should be hope-filled. Right? That's what the gospel gives us. And if you're not hope-filled, come back to the gospel again. Come back and see Jesus who's met your need. See, hope-filled people spill out on other people. And the question is, what are you going to do this Christmas that's going to leak hope on the people around you? And maybe Christmas is that one day a year where it's like, this is the only day I want to see these people because I would like to restrict my time with these people to one day a year. Right? How are you going to be a hope giver? How will you bear hope to those ones? How will you bear hope in the season with what you speak and what you do? And it's my challenge to you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a picture of what that looks like this week. To be one who not only is humble and hopeful, but is a hope giver bearer and a hope bringer. See, this is what it means to know Emmanuel. It's to be humble to know our need and it's to be hope filled because it's met and it's to be hope giving because we have something that can give endlessly. That is the gospel. And in fact, I want to invite you back at three and five on Christmas Eve to hear Pastor Dave preach about the thrill of hope, the thrill of hope and what that means for our world. But now we want to take an opportunity to come and remember that God is with us, to take in this tangible reminder that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he 
has loved us tangibly. That we have a deep need of sin to be forgiven, of relationship to be reconciled, of power over darkness. And that is offered in the body and blood of Christ. And we come humble and we come hope-filled to take the bread and take the cup and celebrate once again a communion, a God with us, a God who welcomes us to his table because he's come to us. Let's pray this morning before we receive the bread and cup. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have overcome every obstacle to be with us, to lift us out of darkness along with all creation and set it on course on the story that you want to write for the world. We thank you for the grace that's free and the grace that foundationally transforms us. We come to your table and we remember Jesus Christ the crucified and resurrected Lord. And we thank you that our need is met. And we symbolically agree again that our need is met here at the table. In Jesus' name, amen.